Ahoy hoy, you delightful little ragamuffin. I'm John Miller, and this is Everybody Trades. And boy, what a weird world we continue to live in in 2020, huh? We're now on month two, two full months of shutdown, entering month three, quite honestly, of this whole thing. And one of the fascinating things about this whole period is I keep seeing lots of people online acting like, well, this whole period, this proves that libertarianism is a joke. And I I got to say, I shake my head at these comments because in what world is libertarianism supposed to take an L here? Why am I supposed to take the loss? Because I'm a champion of individuals and liberty. Well, quite honestly, the federal government and state governments and local municipalities to a somewhat lesser extent, or maybe to a larger extent in other places, just not so much here in Boone County, but yeah, they've taken the lead in terms of shut it down, shut it down, stay inside, social distancing, yada, yada, yada. And really what I want to focus on is is the shutdown aspect of this. So again, we're now on month two of said shutdown with absolutely no end in sight. And meanwhile, we have 30 plus million people who have applied for unemployment benefits with the government. And that doesn't even include the people, by the way, whose jobs have been affected or people who have indeed lost jobs that have not applied for said benefits. So there is massive, massive amounts of pain, suffering that is very real and very obvious if you just take the time to look at it from the shutdowns alone. So again, if we're on month two and we've got tons of wealth and people's lives being destroyed and yet we're still at the same time being told that we got to shuttle, we just got to stay in place, we got to shelter in place for months on end, perhaps years on end until we get a vaccine. So, and I'm the one who's supposed to take a loss here, really. And I'm supposed to sit here and applaud the giant nanny state. That's what I'm supposed to do. Well, to me, this whole notion just shows that there's so much confusion and so many false notions being put out there about what libertarianism is and, frankly, what liberty is. So I'm going to spend this episode talking quite simply about what liberty is and what it isn't. Let's make the very clear distinctions. Now, to help make my point, I'm going to play you guys a soundbite from Episode 5 of the Netflix docuseries Tiger King. And yes, I've talked about Tiger King a few times here the last couple months because why not? What else do we have to talk about now, right? But I'm assuming most of you have seen it, but if not, well, I'm not going to explain it to you now because I'm guessing you've probably heard of it. But anyway, this bite I'm about to play for you, as you know, if you've seen this and maybe if you don't, Joe Exotic eventually runs for the governor of Oklahoma. And his campaign manager, a young man by the name of Joe Dial, well, you're going to hear him talk first, and then you'll hear Joe Exotic as well. So here's that bite. Joe is running for governor of Oklahoma as a libertarian. It is Joe Maldonado, a.k.a. Joe Exotic. He had no idea what a libertarian is. He still has no idea what a libertarian is. I'd like to introduce my wife, but my husband's at home feeding my brand-new baby kangaroo. I always wanted to say that. (laughs) So Joe Exotic is apparently somebody I would call a non-principled libertarian. I've noticed that there are some libertarians, people who label themselves libertarians. Well, 
they don't really have principles in terms of politics or morals or anything like that. They just simply want to do whatever they want to do without consequence. And frankly, that's not the world that I live in, nor is it the world that I'm advocating as a liberty champion. So you know what? I've got another bite from these two that I think will be maybe even more illustrative. Our eventual platform was my platform, and that was less government, less spending, less bills. There's two laws that they're introducing into Congress this year to try and pass. One of them's the Big Cat Safety Act. The only problem is it's all a fraud. You're spending millions trying to decide whether or not I should own a fucking tiger or not. This is my way of living, and nobody's going to tell me any otherwise. Now, there you go. There it was. It's my way of living, and nobody's going to tell me any other way. So, again, there's a bit of a conflict there. There's an obvious conflict when the people who just simply want to do whatever they want to do. What's the conflict? Well, when whatever they want to do runs into what you want to do. So how do we solve these conflicts? Well, this is really what liberty is all about. And where it starts with is you own yourself, and I own myself, and your neighbors own themselves. What does that mean? Well, we are all ultimately the owners of our own property. And our own property, our ultimate own property is our bodies. And of course, all that our bodies can produce and own and all that good stuff. So really what it all comes down to, you heard Joshua Dial there saying, well, what the libertarian platform is about, he listed three things there. He said, less government, less spending, less bills, I believe he said. Well, again, there is a bit of a, a conflict there when you say you want less of something. What, what exactly does that mean? Well, it means you want less spending, but less spending on what? See, now we still, we're still back to kind of the same argument, aren't we? So where, where I want to clarify is what I am for and what I believe all people who are pro-liberty should be for is the zero aggression principle. Now, what that means is, is I am not allowed to aggress upon you in any way. Now, obviously, from a violence perspective, the moral ramifications of that are pretty obvious on one hand. Clearly, I'm not allowed to murder you, assault you, rape you, that kind of deal. That much we can all agree with. That's pretty obvious, right? But, of course, it also extends into the economic financial, the, the other property realm, right? So that means that I can't extort money from you. I can't steal money from your bank account in some, in any way. I can't obviously kick in your front door and steal your PlayStation as what happened to me a few years ago. All of these things are clearly off the table with a zero aggression principle. Now, so far you're all probably with me on this, but you see, I take it even further than most people are willing to go, although I think you'll find that regardless of whether you are agreeing with me on all of these principles, as far as I want to take it on every single aspect of life, I think you'll find at the very least the zero aggression principle is wildly consistent, okay? And the thing is, just so you know what kind of personality I have in general, and again, this is very consistent with the zero aggression principle is I'm not a flaunt-the-rules kind of guy. Now, first of all, I'm not afraid to walk around Columbia right now 
with no rule with I'm sorry, with no mask, with no gloves, anything like that. I'm really not afraid of the virus to be honest and I'm not particularly afraid of passing it on to anyone else either. Having said that, if you would like me to wear a mask to go to your hair salon for instance, okay, fine. Cuz you know why? That's your property. Either you own it or you're paying the rent. Regardless, it's not my hair salon. I don't get to make the rules there. However, if the local government, for instance, if they said, no, you have to wear a mask inside your own car or inside your own house, et cetera, et cetera, then that would be a pretty clear violation of the zero aggression principle as well. See, now we get into the problem of public spaces. See, who owns the public space? Well, it's the government. And apparently the only thing we can do, the, the ultimate beautiful example of government is democracy. So now it's just up to majority rule, a mob, a mob vote as far as how we're going to solve all these various subjective values that are frankly unsolvable in terms of democracy and a one-size-fits-all approach. Like, think about it. The whole argument right now is lives versus like, oh, well, if it saves one life. And then on the other hand, people are like, well, that's great, but it's ruining my business. My, I can't make my mortgage payments, all this different stuff. You're, you're forcing me not to go to work. So on one hand, you've got some people who their subjective values are saying, we want to save lives. And other people are saying, we want to get back to work. To me, there's no way to fairly do any of this without allowing people to, again, conform to the zero aggression principle. And honestly, there's this really flawed idea that liberty, true liberty, laissez-faire, if you want to call it that, creates chaos. Well, really, it's quite the opposite. Again, it's the government that is creating chaos. It's the government that is putting us under this one-size-fits-all thing that is that is arguably not saved any lives over the long term, and yet here we are, we've put 30-plus million people out of work. See, again, just using the example of, okay, some businesses, some homes, they're going to force you or at least ask you if you're going to come inside, and if you don't agree, they won't let you come in. They'll ask you to put on a mask. They'll ask you to perhaps rub some Purell on your hands, whatever it might be. Really, this creates a lot more order and peace than these one-size-fits-all, we're going to shut down your business with the sheriff's department if you disagree kind of things. It really does because guess what? The people who are vulnerable, we're not forcing you out into the streets, are we? Yes, that would be a violation of the zero aggression principle as well. So really, when it comes to the idea of collectives, right? Believe me, I, I believe in free trade, so I know that we can do things we do more things together than we can individually. So all that liberty really means is that there are no government collectives. No one is forced into a collective like, say, Social Security or Obamacare, for instance. But what it doesn't mean is that communes are legal. It doesn't mean that collective health care is legal, for instance. Say you and a million of your best friends or a thousand of your friends. I say friends very kiddingly there, but what I'm saying is is people who agree with you, people who consent to your collective health care plan, well, clearly there's no aggression there. 
It's all about consent. What's the difference between consensual sex and rape? Well, it's, it's consent, isn't it? What's the difference between a 300-pound man running down a 190-pound man on the streets versus him doing it on the football field? Well, it's consent, isn't it? And speaking of collectives, I'd also like to point out that liberty is not a rejection of, quote, public goods. For instance, take restaurants. Well, restaurants are clearly privately owned businesses that are open to the, quote, public. But why are why are public roads, quote unquote, different? Well, it's not that they're open to the public per se. It's that public in this context means taxes. It means that people who don't even ride or use said roads for any particular reason, well, they're forced, they're coerced into paying into the road system without their consent. Now, let's just think about this. Not only does that violate the zero aggression principle, but what if the government, let's just imagine the government took over restaurants as they have essentially with our public road system. Do you think we'd have more variety in the food department or less? Do you think the the food quality would be better or do you think it'd be worse? I think these questions pretty obviously answer themselves. And the argument, of course, is against some people, all right, you're right, John, we do need a free market of restaurants and food. That's great. But we also need the government to protect us with regulations and health safety, yada, yada, yada. Well, my argument to that is, as long as, they're, as long as the customers, the consumer, if they demand safety, if they demand some outside entity to come in and make sure that local restaurants are clean, they're not allowing infestations of mice and rodents and roaches and whatever, what, whatever horror shows you might think of happening in the back kitchen – well, as long as consumers demand that, those things will exist. Those type of organizations, they'll emerge. And actually, you might find that they do a better job than your local health department. I really believe that. And really, what I'm rejecting here is this notion that we have to have taxation, that some form of aggression upon all people is necessary for society to work. And then there's the other side of that argument where – well, I guess another version of that argument, I should say, where people will say, well, it's not aggression because of the social contract. And I'm sorry, the social contract is not real. The social contract is never mentioned anywhere in our founding documents, first of all. And second of all, my biggest question about the social contract is, can I see my signature on it? Because if I don't have my signature on it, that means I didn't agree to it. And agreement has got to be more than just being born in a particular area and not, be, and not wanting to move literally out of the country. That's not, that form of consent does not exist anywhere else in society. So I reject that notion completely. And it also seems that people say, well, it's not aggressive because it's not a majority of your income. It's not x y or z amount well here's my counter to that as well liberty is not about arbitrary numbers or percentages you see if taking 100 percent of someone's 
earnings of someone's wealth, if that's tantamount to slavery, well, then what about 90%? Is that just 90% slavery? At what point does it not become slavery? At what point does taxation not become aggression? That's basically what I'm asking. Now, obviously, if you're getting offended right now at that comparison, well, let me pump the brakes for a second and tell you that obviously in terms of degree, paying income taxes to the IRS, there's no comparison of that to slavery, of being an actual slave in America, for instance, in the 1800s. But we're discussing, but all we're discussing here is degree. See, the nature of the relationship is exactly the same. It's no real different than, say, comparing, all right, yes, I would rather somebody steal $200 out of my bedside table than shoot me in the head. That's true. In terms of degree, those particular things are not comparable. But they're both still wrong. They're both still violations of my rights and my property. And, of course, the zero aggression principle. So, yes, in my world, that means that liberty means that Augusta National, for instance, can admit whomever it wants to its golf course or not admit. But it also does not mean that we can't criticize Augusta for its practices. Sorry, that was a bit of a double negative. What I'm saying is, is of course, we still have the right to criticize Augusta for admitting or discluding certain people, right? You see, liberty is not an excuse for racism. Yes, you can refuse to serve someone at a lunch counter in my world because that person happens to be a different color than you. Now, I find that behavior to be truly not only abhorrent personally, but also just totally counterproductive for society. Also, I, I also absolutely know that creating laws that infringe on others' peaceful behavior that violates the non-aggression principle, no matter how abhorrent that behavior that you're trying to, to, to curb in is, to me, it's still way worse than one guy being a racist prick. It really is. Just infringing that entire law, on every, just violating all of society's property rights to punish one guy or just a few people for being racist, that doesn't really work. And my example for that is, Back in the day, this is, this is what I was taught, okay? This is the very liberal Missouri journalism school. This is what they taught me in communications law. They said, well, back in the day, there was this Supreme Court case that basically decided that the Ku Klux Klan, all of their horrible racist speech is protected under the First Amendment. And what that actually did is it brought the Klan out into the streets. They felt empowered to then just, hey, go out and say their stupid stuff out in front for all the world to know. And what that actually did is it rendered them a joke. It actually, they exposed themselves for what they were. And now the Klan is still, to this day, the Klan is obviously free to do what it wants under the First Amendment, but now the power of that group is basically zero. Its numbers are I've got to be just beyond dwindled. I, I, don't, I can't even imagine that the Klan has any power whatsoever in 2020. I really can't. And my point is, if you protect everyone's speech, 
you allow the idiots of society, like the Ku Klux Klan, to expose themselves, and then by the process of public opinion, the democracy of public opinion, you will, people will vote with their eyeballs and their ears and say, yeah, I don't want to be, I don't want to listen to this anymore. And then eventually people decide, yeah, I don't want to be associated with these people anymore. And eventually they essentially go away. And my whole point is, let the lunch counter be the same thing. Let the guy who refuses to serve a certain segment of our society, no matter if it's black people, if it's gay people, I don't care what it is. You should have the right to do that because you built it. Simple as that. And nobody should be able to tell you what you should do with your, with your body or your property. But at the same time, you have to live with your own decisions. And I would be happy to let that lunch counter owner be a joke just like the KKK is. Let the court of public opinion find these people guilty. That's all I'm saying. See, to me, government, they create far more racial tensions via identity politics and dividing up the loot, as I'm going to call it, the money that we all get from the treasury, if we get some. I mean, it's all based partially on race. And that's that goes both ways. Back in the day, black people, when they were denied entry to public universities, well, guess what? That was not only racist, it was a violation of their property, too. You see, black people still were paying taxes anytime they bought something. They paid taxes. The income tax was around in the early days of, of Jim Crow and all this stuff. So to deny a qualified student access to that which he helped fund is a clear property violation. So again, don't tell me that we have to, in order to protect people, we have to all live under a one-size-fits-all society because not only am I not seeing any evidence of that during this COVID-19 period, I haven't seen a lot of example of it in terms of taxation, civil rights, or any of that stuff. Frankly, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, that came around because society was changing, not because a bunch of white guys in Congress forced change upon the rest of us. Think about it. All right. Well, I got to a lot there. A little bit longer than normal on this episode. So I thank, I thank you all for sticking with me. So until next time, I am John Miller, and this has been Everybody Trades. Everybody Trades.